are these people secularized, secularized to the point that they have moral conviction without obligation despite being Christians? Should the church be speaking out more forcefully about this hypocrisy? If I answer that with one word, would it be okay? The answer is yes. And uh, not because it's popular, not because uh, you can certainly start up a whole Twitter storm asking about whether Christians um, give a rip about those who are disadvantaged or impoverished or um, without privilege. Um, the, the, the short answer is we, we walk in Jesus' steps, and he made it very clear um, for whom he had great interest. And he also made it very clear with whom he took great issue. And the, the presence and endurance of hypocrisy um, within um, a Christian um, culture, um, I'd like to say it will just sort of evaporate with time. But as we all are tempted with the very um, um, vice of hypocrisy, whether you claim a belief in a God or not, um, the truth of the matter is that the accusation sticks with a lot of Christians who will profess one thing and then demonstrate the manifestly different or opposite form of compassion, interest, care, um, love that, that Jesus not only authorized but incarnated in himself. So um, uh, how, how do we account for that disconnect in, in many Christians' lives? And uh, listen to me, like, do, do I reflect that fully? I don't. I don't demonstrate that or manifest that. I don't put myself up as an example of having a uh, full-orbed, um, eminently sacrificial heart towards those who have uh, less um, advantage than I do. But um, I would say that while the accusation sticks, it doesn't stick with Jesus or at what he came to embody. Um, the, the, the need, and I'm, and I'm totally borrowing a phrase that I've heard Tim Keller use in other places, what we need in a situation like that is not less of Jesus but more. And therefore, um, for, for Christians to unfortunately um, invite a reputation of uh, professing all sorts of noble, virtuous things and then stepping right out and demonstrating something quite opposite, um, the reputation sticks and w- the, the ridicule is proper. And if anything, uh, it's not without precedent in the storyline of Scripture for the people of God to be called out by those who have no place in that people of God and the and the calling out of the people of God being absolutely proper and God's way of chastisement. So I hope it keeps coming, to put it kind of oddly, right? I, I hope the criticism keeps coming because it's meant to chasten. And, uh, and therefore, um, we, we, our, our morality is, is not something we can sort of cast off and cast on at our own leisure and discretion. I hope I didn't dance around that so much that I missed the heart of it, but there it is. I did say one word, <clears throat> but I'm a preacher, so that's my, my problem. Can't end there. Um, a lot of these have some similar threads, but I, I think this, trying to find the ones that go in a different direction. But, um, so we'll try this one. Although I believe that moral judgment is grounded in faith, I have witnessed even fell victim to cruel and evil condemnation that is said to be delivered in the name of God. Those who adopt that warped perception of what it means to be a follower of Christ sincerely believe they speak words of truth. 
So can any human perception of moral ground, besides maybe a universal law that is embedded within our being, be accurately justified? What an excellent question. What an excellent question. I, I think it, it is not um, an it's not arguable to say that Christianity argues for a particular grid of what constitutes right and wrong, to be sure. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. So it's not as if in the, the, the benevolence that we see through God, through Jesus, and the grace that comes to us through his sacrificial death on our behalf, um, that he thereby uh, rules out the place of di- making discernments between right and wrong. Uh, the question that the, the, the inquirer asks is, what about all the prevalence of what feels a great deal like condemnation? And, you know, that's a, that's a word that I wish we could kind of have a dialogue with the one who asked it about because there's, there's all sorts of ways of trying to interpret that word. Condemnation usually means an expression of contempt or of, of, of declaring one incapable of ever receiving the mercies of God for any reason. And, you know, there are plenty of moments in the New Testament where there are people who come before Jesus in the presence of the so-called religious class who either with their eyes, their whispers, or their words, or picking up rocks are prepared in that moment to express some form of condemnation on some spectrum of intensity. And to a person, in every single one of those instances, you will see Jesus come to their defense. To come to their defense. And if you are familiar at all with the New Testament, then you are perhaps familiar with that story in John chapter 7, which, you know, within Christian tradition, can't quite find the right place for where it fit in any of the Gospels, but about the woman that was caught in adultery. Um, and according to the law, it was worthy of her own death. And everybody starts to pick up stones to commit and execute the sentence right then and there. And what does Jesus say? Hey, um, just checking. If any of you are without sin, go ahead and throw. And... John captures the rather um, sort of um, poignant moment that the oldest ones dropped their rocks first because they knew. And in that moment, she is rescued from an imminent kind of uh, execution. And uh, Jesus says, uh, all your condemners, where are they gone? Neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now in that moment, Jesus is doing multiple things. He is saying, what you're doing falls afoul of what God would intend for anybody with regard to sexuality. But grace is present, and I shall extend it to you, and you have no idea how I'll extend it to the whole world and what I'm about to do in a few months or years. So um, do Christians fall prey to allowing their moral grid to give them justification for issuing condemnation without even considering the possibility of grace or kindness or love or mercy or understanding. They do, they have, and I'm sorry to say, they will. But if I am to look um, to the one who is the centerpiece of my faith and, and the model of what it means to demonstrate the manifest presence of God, then I will hear from him and see in him quite clearly the place not of condemnation, but the place of mercy. Doesn't discriminate. Doesn't I mean? Doesn't doesn't throw aside. Doesn't cast aside the possibility of of act of, of demonstrating or speaking to what is within what God intends and what is outside of that. 
but is still the one who comes and leads with mercy to those who will receive it. Again, that was a really thoughtful question, and I hope I captured the heart of it. And um, if I didn't, do come up again, because um, it, it goes without saying that within Christian tradition, there are plenty of moments in which uh, church people felt it was their responsibility to issue that condemnation, not simply to say, I, I believe you're wrong, but to actually flatly say, you have no part in God and never will. It's a bridge beyond, it's a bridge too far than where Jesus goes. And, and therefore, I think um, uh, Christians who feel it incum- responsible for uh, uh, issuing these sorts of condemnations without qualification or without relationship or without any opportunity to kind of hear from another, uh, I don't think they're actually reflecting the peace of Jesus. I think they're reflecting some distorted version thereof. Um, Christians are frequently accused of being judgmental, like we were just talking about. Where is the line between moral conviction, which is an opinion, and moral obligation, which would seem to require taking a stand, expressing a value, or taking some action? Uh, Keller uses the words belief and faith interchangeably. Is there a difference? Uh, Let me answer the last part of the question first. And that is, I think he does use it interchangeably. They're essentially synonymous, uh, that, that both reflect an idea that there are some premises upon which one vitally builds a life, that one can't come up with absolute certainty as the basis for that trust. And that's kind of his overarching thesis for the entirety of the series, that everybody at some level operates on that kind of activity. Everybody's got a certain set of, of um, things that they just sort of um, hold to without uncritically, that they can't point to and say, ha, that's, there's my basis for certainty. So on that point, yes, he, he does use them interchangeably, and I don't think he means to make much of a distinction whenever he uses those words in the same sentence. Um, but read the sentence just prior to that, the question just prior to that. Just Christians are frequently accused of being judgmental. Where is the line between moral conviction, which is an opinion and and moral obligation, which would seem to require taking a stand, expressing a value, or taking some action. Sure. Not to oversimplify the question, but um, as a Christian, Jesus becomes my grid for the, 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 the index by which I make certain moral judgments. And so I follow his lead in what constitutes what falls within his intentions for humanity and what falls outside of them. Now, obviously there are moments and there are situations in which I cannot point to any particular explicit chapter and verse to justify or explain why I might uh, operate in a certain moral fashion. And in those instances, I have to be careful, reflective, discerning, but always charitable in how I hold to that conviction. Um, But... Uh, as, as Keller makes the distinction between a moral conviction and a moral obligation, no, if you're a Christian, you're not simply holding on to feelings that you simply assert and say, well, this is just the way I feel, and therefore that's what makes it right or wrong. As a Christian, which I think it, as it would be with anyone in the faith tradition, you're grounding your moral obligations in, in a grid that you um, receive, that you then in faith submit to on the basis 
of all sorts of things, including good evidence, but not exclusively good evidence. So, uh, uh, as he said, we all kind of operate with certain moral convictions. We, we kind of go, like, that's, that's, that's nuts. Why are you doing that? And, and people look at us and go, well, that's quite clear why I do that. Why, why do you have a problem with it? And, and then our moral convictions collide. And so in that moment, what do you do? How do you arbitrate in a moment like that? That's where you appeal to certain moral obligations that you don't ground yourself, that you don't simply justify because you want it to be that way, but because um, by faith in the one who has died for me, I give him um, the authority and, uh, to, to order my moral, um, not only my moral feelings, but my moral obligations. So it's not arbitrary. I do appeal to him and to his view. And, and then in those instances that I, I can't point to an express verse, then I have to make certain good and necessary deductions from what he has shared. And by the grace of God and Lord willing, I will have chosen wisely. But in time, new evidence comes along and you go, well, maybe I, you know, maybe there was a certain hastiness or based upon a, a, a limited amount of evidence to make that deduction. And now I have new evidence and perhaps then I, I make a slightly different judgment. But again, rather than speak in this abstract theoretical realm, you kind of have to go case by case on questions like that. So, um, uh, by faith, in belief, on the basis of believing who Jesus is and why I believe he has authority and the right to uh, um, tell me what is true and, and by which then I make moral judgments, um, I, I look to him to give me guidance in questions of that nature. Uh, Keller has characterized secularism fairly in earlier weeks, but this week seemed to unfairly reduce it to evolutionary-based atheism. In that simplistic view, it's easy to say the strong eat the weak is the only governing principle. Can't some branch of secularist philosophy provide its own telos or sense of life's purpose in which to ground morality? So, for instance, stoicism is an ancient philosophy that subscribes to no particular deity. But as he said earlier in the talk, there's, there's a certain um, number of examples of appeal to Greek categories in which to ground one's moral, um, uh, moral sensibilities. Um, can, can one hold, or rather, can one feel a moral uh, conviction that there is a grand order to things to which then one subscribes, and, and one remains sort of agnostic about the belief in a deity. Um, do people like that exist? I'm pretty certain that there's somebody in this room, any number of you that might hold to that, hold to that category. Uh, I think um, his argument is at some point you're going to have to ground your moral sensibilities in something that becomes universally applicable to, to everyone and to which everyone must be universally accountable. Now, you may not call that a god, but you may call that a certain order um, that just exists, in which case, okay, fine. There is a, a version of secularity that isn't necessarily atheistic in itself and um, doesn't necessarily uh, let the way evolution has proceeded um, to account for why we act in the ways we do. Um, however, if you, if, I guess if you, I guess the question I might, gently and humbly press back on is then what what grounds that sensibility you may not you may not hold to the idea that the strong eat the weak 
but you're going to have to provide perhaps the basis for why that's not okay. Um, in which case, you're kind of adopting, I think, one of the other arguments that he appealed to in which secular people argue for. He's not saying everybody's talking about an evolutionary model. He did say, it's just practical. Look, look at how much we're flourishing. We're 7 billion people in the world because more and more we're adopting the idea that maybe we all have a kind of dignity or inherent value. It seems to be working, and that seems to be good. And again, that's a whole set of, that's a whole statement that is, uh, when I was in debate back in high school, we would appeal to a guy named Malthus, right? He was a, he was a, he was a philosopher and a sociologist back in, what, the 18th century, and he said it would be proper and good for us to limit population growth because the bigger we get, the more we got to feed, and, and that's bad, and so we put an undue burden on a lot of people, so wouldn't it be better if we did all we could to uh, reduce population growth at a certain level? Well, so what's one way to do that? Well, let the really hungry people die. Now, is that an evolutionary model? Okay, some might say yes, some might say no, but it's still a practical um, framework to wait by which to make that decision. So, you know, I, I, maybe if you were to press Tim Keller on that question, does he say that if you don't believe in God, then you necessarily adopt an evolutionary view? Maybe you could say, I don't go there. Maybe he would say, okay, that's fine. Um, I guess the, the question therein, though, uh, it invites the other question. Well, then what does ground a sense of moral responsibility and moral accountability that you're not simply asserting a moral conviction, but you're actually saying, I think you should have the same moral conviction. Um, again, these are great questions, and, and they're really well thought out, and I hope I'm getting to the heart of them. Come up after. Uh, could it be that some of the Phariseeism that is so hurtful is the result of prioritizing sins, making some seem worse than others? I've been an ordained pastor for 15 years, and nothing shocks me anymore. <laughs> um, you, you hear more and more all the time. And you hear all sorts of things that go, wow, I can't believe people do that. And then you realize, no, no, that's totally understandable. Um, and all you got to do is kind of look inside your own heart. Uh, I don't remember if it was in a sermon or if I even quoted it here. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, famous author of the Gulag Archipelago, sent, spent decades in a, in a Soviet gulag and wrote about the account of that. And, and uh, he said, you know, morality in some places, people kind of wish that you could kind of separate the good people from the bad people. And wouldn't that be great? And that was kind of a, a reigning principle within uh, communism for, you know, 75 years. And yet his argument is the, the dividing line between good and evil is shot through right the human heart. We've all got it. It's all there. And uh, therefore, um, when it comes to Phariseeism, um, anybody can come up with anything as the basis for saying, you're not like me, and you don't get it. So in a sermon I gave even last Sunday, we showed a clip from a, a film that came out about 10 years ago called Doubt, in which uh, a member of the faculty of a Catholic parochial school makes an accusation against a priest, and uh, they've both gone to confessional, and they both kind of in a moment acknowledge that they both have um, committed sins, and in a moment you think that they're going to have the sort of come-to-Jesus moment where we all realize we're all corrupt in the sight of God, and yet we're all dependent upon grace, and then uh, one faculty member, the nun who's played by Meryl Streep, just sort of hardens herself and says, no, no, we're not the same. Every human heart is capable of adopting a pharisaical attitude by which you not only 
make a discernment between whether or not you think they are operating in accordance with or in contrast with the, the, the eyes of God. But you begin to sort of treat them as somehow of a different species than yourself. And I think that's going to be one way of characterizing what Phariseeism is. You're otherizing somebody on the basis of what you find to be troubling about their choices. And, in fact, their choices might be outside what God intends. But for you to then look at them with a certain disdain and contempt is to what? It's actually to become blind under your own condition. And how anybody that you might call out for a particular issue, you yourself are as dependent upon mercies and graces, and there but for the grace of God go you. So, um, uh, yes, um, it doesn't, uh, there, there is no particular sin. I mean, different eras invite different sins that kind of stand front and center as the, as the um, sin du jour that get most labeled as uh, worthy of condemnation. But I don't think it's, I think that's, that's true for every era. And, and therefore, um, anybody who holds to a theory of right and wrong will always be tempted to Phariseeism. And that's kind of what he says at the, end of the, at the end of the talk, right? The degree to which you understand your absolute dependence upon the mercies of God to be in right standing with God is the degree to which you will not adopt a Phariseeism that looks down with condemnation upon somebody with whom you disagree on the basis of a moral judgment. Uh, this one, I'm confused. Are you saying a Christian cannot believe in an evolutionary model or the concept of evolution? Can't science be the ep- explanation for how things happen? Uh, that's two questions. Um, can science be the explanation of how things happen? Absolutely. That's science's job. That's why I go to scientists to tell me how insulin works for my type 1 diabetic son. They do an excellent job of explaining to me the activating energy of, of a hormone like that and what it does to the human body. It tells me how it works. That's what science's job is. Science's job is not to tell me how I ought to act in the world in a moral way. That's, that's, the, that's the latter question. You, like, you can go to science for that, and that's what that whole book is about. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, there's a, there's a great example in there about this TED Talk that came out several years ago by this guy that said, he, calls, he wrote a book called The Miracle Molecule. And he says the miracle molecule is a thing called oxytocin. And oxytocin is a, is a hormone we secrete in all sorts of circumstances. Um, including, including when you eat chocolate cake. But that's not the only one. And oxytocin, by his study, that the more oxytocin someone had, the more genial they were, the more generous they could be, and the more loving they might be. And so, so long as everybody had a healthy supply of oxytocin, that's the source of our morality. Just as long as you have oxytocin, everybody will, uh, will all get along, Rodney King. Well, does a TED Talk on it, writes a book on it, and then other people try to reproduce his findings by doing the same exact studies he does by the same methodology he does. And five different studies can't get the same results. In fact, one study saw that when they made sure that you had a higher level of oxytocin, guess what? They ended up becoming more aggressive and more irritable and less likely to be generous. And so the whole person's like central premise for saying, look, look what science can do to help create a world in which we're all moral and generous to one another, well, that kind of falls on its behind. So science is great at what it does when it does what it does. 
But when it starts launching out here into philosophy and metaphysics, it falls hard. Now, to the first question. Can a Christian believe in an evolutionary account of explaining how things came to be? I know many Christians who do. Now, depending on which Christian you can talk to, you can say that those two things are incompatible beliefs. Um, I I know plenty of people that hold those two things in tension and would seem to be not only as moral, but as spiritual and as uh, alive to the Lord and believing and, and full of witness for the Lord Jesus as anybody else that says evolutionary is not a good explanatory account for what things are. So um, can, can, can a Christian hold to an evolutionary account and still abide in who Jesus is? I know Christians who do. So the, not, do I believe in it? I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> now, look, we can go down that thread in a different, all sorts of different ways, but we don't need to. But um, just to put that out there to, to answer that question so that it doesn't get too complicated. Yeah, it's there. Um, so, there. Um, Tim has referenced a lot that the Bible is the very source of Christian teaching and moral absolutes. How can, uh, how can you best uh, outline Christian morality from a text like the Bible, which has been translated so many times? Uh, didn't I thought they were going to go in one way on that question. Instead, they went actually to a much easier question, and that is, how can you trust the Bible if there have been so many translations? Um, no doubt. There have been dozens of translations. Uh, a translation I typically use is called the English Standard Version, which is only about 20 or 25 years old. Um, when it comes to, to asking, does the Bible have authority, how can the Bible have authority when there's so many translations, I would respectfully push back and say, go ahead, just take 10 of those translations and compare and contrast them and ask yourself, do you find appreciably different moral outlooks on the basis of the translation that you're consulting? My humble, respectful response to that is you will not. There is no translation of the Bible that says anywhere that it wasn't, it, it didn't say Jesus rose from the dead, it was that Jesus rose from his bed. No, there's no, there's no translation that makes that such vast change in the actual content of what the text says. The, the harder question to in, encounter, and, and I won't go there today because I think Keller's going to go there in a couple weeks, and that is, how can you base your morality in anything um, that is a, a text of antiquity? Why does that text over, say, the Quran or the Upanishads or... Uh, the Bhagavad Gita. Why, why do we look to the Bible for that moral grid? Why does it have authority as opposed to other texts? That's a, that's a more vital question and a question worth having. I'm not, I won't go there today because I think Keller can do a better job of kind of setting up that question. But to, to just answer the question that was put before me, how can you believe in a moral grid? How can you believe that it has a moral authority when there's multiple translations? It's because none of those translations differ so significantly that you're getting a different moral outlook for what Jesus would argue is um, both the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, will you? Some of these others are starting to cross the same thread, so it may feel like we're answering some similar questions. But um, this whole lecture has been based on the premise that there is moral absolutes, but what evidence is there actually for this? Um, on pretty much every major issue, people are divided on what is right and wrong. Uh, no doubt, and that was certainly uh, his contention 
uh, early in the text that uh, uh, as he was contrasting the way both earlier faith traditions and earlier eras uh, grounded their moral absolutes um, for modern um, versions of that, uh, he made it pretty clear um, every one of those traditions argued that there were moral absolutes, they just didn't agree on what those moral absolutes were. And that's, and that's true. Um, a book I might recommend uh, that kind of gets to that question both genuinely and succinctly is um, C.S. Lewis's book called The Abolition of Man. Um, at the end of the book, in the appendix of the book, he talks about this thing called the Tao, where he looks at both um, w- w- at ancient religious and uh, irreligious um, systems, whether philosophical or religions, religious, and begins to note the commonalities among many of them. Um, you, you'll never find a faith or philosophical tradition that doesn't think courage is a good thing. You, you'll never find that. There is no faith tradition that says, don't ever be courageous. Like, that's too much. Don't worry about that. You'll never see that. And, and consequently, there are, there are lots of threads that find their way into multiple faith traditions that you would say, agree on that, agree on that, agree on that, agree on that, agree on that. So, um, yes, there are distinctives across faith traditions. Um, but there are also commonalities. So uh, obviously Tim Keller is coming from the position of a Christian that would say that there is a moral absolute. We, f- we, we would believe in that moral absolute on the basis of what we believe about Jesus. Uh, he represents both a unique voice among the voices. He also represents a unique history among um, the voices that speak to, to moral and ultimate questions. Um, you know, there's a great YouTube channel you should go find. It's called C.S. Lewis Doodle. <laughs> and it's actually uh, a narrator that's narrating certain excerpts from several of C.S. Lewis's great works, and then there's this guy that they've kind of sped up in time-lapse photography who draws on chalk, on chalkboard, kind of um, representations to kind of capture um, in visual ways some of what, Jesus, uh, what C.S. Lewis is saying in real time, and it's just wonderful. And uh, uh, one of those um, C.S. Lewis doodles has everything to do with, what do I do with multiple religions out there? What do I do with all the faith traditions in the world? And, and uh C.S. Lewis says to believe to be a Christian is not to say uh, Islam, Hinduism, um, uh, Sikhism, um, whatever, whatever faith tradition might say. It's not to, to to sort of cast them all aside and say they're all full of untruth. It's just to say that whenever uh, they collide with some claim where Jesus offers a different answer, to be a Christian is to say I go with Jesus. My bet's on him, because there is a great deal of truth to be found in a number of faith traditions. And, and therefore worthy of a great deal of respect and understanding. So his argument is not, uh, close your ears, la, 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 I don't want to hear about Islam at all. It's, it's to say um, there is truth to be found. There is the Tao. There is this kind of thread of moral judgment that's to be found in a variety of systems. But to be a Christian is to argue that wherever Jesus says, you know what, this is, I, I, call, I call something on that one, then we, we kind of go with him on that one. We have time for one more. Many people have access to the Christian resources, but they don't use them. I agree that many people leave the Christian faith because of the moral failures of other Christians. Therefore, it seems it's more practical and good to live a secular life since it's since so many Christians aren't moral in any way. Uh, to be sure. There's a lot of reason for 
becoming disillusioned. Uh, just coming from within a faith tradition like Christianity. And it's not unique to Christianity, no doubt. That um, that which you have heard and uh, grown up in, and then you see the exact opposite manifested in those who are entrusted with the greatest responsibility and authority and influence, showing the exact opposite, and you think, why am I part of this group? Why would I do that? And it is tragic, sorrowful, and uh, while it explains that kind of disillusionment, I might humbly say in response, it may explain the disillusionment, I just don't think it justifies the disillusionment. I believe those emotions are strong, and I don't believe they're illusory, and I don't believe that they're, um, I don't believe they're wrong or to be despised, but uh, Jesus told me to trust him, to hear him, to follow him, to believe that his love is real and it's everlasting, and though the world may crumble beneath your feet, he remains. And so, though the, so a particular local church may fall. It's, it's Jesus' own words who says, Upon this rock I shall burn my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I know that there's a lot of people in this world, in this county, who have given up on the church. But there is one person who has not given up on the church, and that's God. And therefore, um, while I, I can understand the, the moral feeling, the moral um, revulsion one has, for a great deal of Christian witness that is just absolutely um, reprehensible. Uh, there's a line from G.K. Chesterton, who was um, uh, a Roman Catholic um, author of the late 19th, early 20th century. He says, um, Christianity has not been tried and found lacking. Uh, Christianity, Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. Now, my Protestant heart and whatever Protestant hearts in here might go, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't have to try Christianity. And yeah, okay, good. Yes, you're right. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And yet, even if you come back on Sunday, we're open every Sunday around here. You never knew that. Um, the text you'll hear me preach on in a couple Sundays is about where Jesus talks about the, the, the into by the narrow gate. Um, the, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And um, uh, it is Jesus' high bar of walking in his way that he sets before us. But he never asks us to do something that he hasn't done himself. And he never asks us to do something that he doesn't hold his hand in. And he never asks us to do something that he doesn't give us help by his own spirit to do so. But he does call us, um, he asks of us to walk in his way that we might begin to reflect his nature and his beauty and his character in all that we do. I promise I'm lying in the plane. (laughs) I understand why somebody would feel very disillusioned with the church. I don't think choosing a secular life is a good alternative for the reasons that you've already heard him articulate. There's plenty of things that there, there will come a point where you will bump up into moral judgment and you will have to ask yourself, why am I so bent on insisting that this is an unjust way? And if you have cast off a transcendent order, if you've cast off the belief that there is a God or that that God actually manifested himself in the Son of God and Jesus, if you cast all that off, then you will be left with just a, an assertion that that is an unjust thing, but you will not be able to tell anybody else why they should follow the same principle or feeling that you do. I get the disillusionment. And we'll wring hands together and I'll pour 
We'll talk about it. I just don't think the, the, the option that the, the inquirer is asking is a, is a real uh, solution to the disillusionment they feel, despite the, the propriety of what they feel with that disillusionment. Okay. Really appreciate your questions. <laughs> and I really do hope that... Um, it's re- this is really kind of bizarre, right? Like, you ask questions, and I'm supposed to say something, and you're supposed to go, yeah, okay, great. Like, <laughs> I, 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 not the Pope. Uh, I would, you know, I'd love to in- invite um, further conversation and dialogue. Um, so do that if you can, if you have time. Really appreciate your time. Next week, he is going to press further kind of into part two of the question of morality, but focus his energies on talking about justice. And boy, if that isn't a topic of great concern and conversation in all places um, over all issues. So I do hope you'll come. If you want to fill out your survey tonight, you can. Tonight's certainly not the last night you can do that. Otherwise, if you ate something, drank something, or brought something in, just do us all a favor and kind of clean up after yourself. Otherwise, thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.